So what we've been doing this winter at the 9 o'clock service I did this spring and everyone chuckled because it was 19 degrees. What we've been doing this winter is looking at the life of Jesus as best we can through the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is really long, so we've been taking it in, in sections and categories. We took a break um, to, from that for a little while, but we looked at uh, the fights that Jesus gets into in the book of Luke. Always seems to be fighting with religious leaders, even with his good friends, the disciples, even with his good friends, the religious leaders. We looked at some of the things he taught. We're going to look now for the next couple of weeks at uh, parables. And parables are so interesting because they still work. The teachings are still compelling 2,000 years later. The stories that this, Jesus, that this Jewish carpenter told... But they're also compelling because it was Jesus who taught them. And at the time, and even to you and I, they can seem sort of like vague religious what? But very soon after Jesus told them, the world was forever changed. And so what happens is he tells a story like the one we're going to look at today. And uh, on Easter, we're going to begin a story on one of his more famous parables that should be called the story of the running father. It's not because we just misunderstand the Bible. But... um, We look at these stories and they sound kind of like sweet little religious pithy hallmark cards. I mean, that's what Luke chapter 13 verses 18 and 19 will sound like to us. And yet, so quickly after Jesus said this, the world was forever different. A large people group who for thousands of years had worshipped on Friday and Saturday largely switched to Sunday. That's remarkable. In 2017, I've made this joke before, sorry, I think it's really compelling. In 2017, we name our dogs Caesar and our children Peter. And that, I think, is a terrific joke. Perhaps I didn't present it well as a joke. But we see this text and we're like, that's nice religious language and... We're used to Christianity. We're used to the fact that there's a symbol of death and execution hanging there, and we actually take hope in that. But when Jesus said this, people were like, okay, that sounds nice. And then the world was forever different. So what we're going to look at from now until uh, Easter are the times that Jesus told a story and described to us the kingdom. And kingdom is such an interesting word, right? If my eight-year-old's in here, she's like, okay, so there's a king, it's a monarchy, like there's probably a castle. And one of the reasons that Jesus did it was an indirect pushback and a direct pushback, depending on the example, of the disciples who wanted him to be a military and a civic ruler. In the Lord's Prayer, we're taught to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which means... It's a command that our lives become more like his. Jesus describes the kingdom in his teaching. When he says, fear not, little flock, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Here in Luke chapter 13, verses 18 and 19, he says this. What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And I'm at pains to connect us with that very sweet 
little story and the fact that after Jesus was crucified and then rose from the dead, the world was never the same. And yet he told this story for our good, for our hope, for us to understand what he does in our hearts and minds. In the first century, there was a bishop of Smyrna named Polycarp. You heard of Polycarp? I want to point this out, that Jesus told this story that could be on any Hallmark card and on any wall, and it would be so inoffensive, right? No one would be offended to know that the kingdom like, is like a tree. This is great. It's so nice. Polycarp was the bishop of a church. And he stood in an arena where he was encouraged to recant his statement that Jesus is king, that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And he stood in the arena and he said, Eighty and six years have I served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? And then he said, In the arena I bless thee for deigning me worthy of this day and this hour that I may be, that I may be among thy martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord, Jesus Christ. You see, after Jesus went to the cross and rose from the dead, they started going back to the, all the things that he said. Peter taught Mark. Matthew wrote them down for himself. Luke interviewed people. Because it's, it is a beautiful, inoffensive in its, of itself metaphor, and yet it is a metaphor that if we understand it changes everything in ourselves and in the world. So Jesus told this little story very soon after the world was shaken. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you help us to grapple with your description of the with God life, calling it a kingdom. Would you help us to hear you saying these words? Would your Holy Spirit make the text come alive that we might be hopeful, that we might live restored lives? of the true humanity that you've purchased for us. Amen. So I really appreciate Romans chapter 14, verse 17, because I love the word kingdom. It's so rich. I know that I'm supposed to pray that it become real in my life, and yet I'm like, what is it? Paul says, the kingdom is righteousness, joy, and peace. In Romans chapter 14, 17. So those are the things that God gives those who trust him. He gives them right living, which sounds all religious-y, right? But isn't it what we desire in our strong moments? To know how to love well, to know how to do our work well, to know how to be a human being. That's righteousness. Peace and joy, much easier. We just want those. That's Paul's description of the kingdom. What is Jesus telling us? He's telling us that the kingdom begins small. How? How does it begin? It begins small. Jesus said, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took 
and sowed in his garden, and it grew, and it became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. It begins small and slow. It's not clear where all the power for it's coming from. When you and I plant a seed, like we understand some of the science, and then we just watch. There's an assumption in here, and I think this is part of the reason that Jesus uses the word kingdom. The assumption is that there is a king. You and I don't naturally have him, and we need him. So if we extend the metaphor out, like so you and I are capable of becoming trees, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, we're, become, we're capable of becoming men and women of stability who can offer rest and beauty to God and to one another. But how does that happen? Slowly, by acquiescing to the king. So there's an assumption that we need him. And this is why many of you are here this morning. Not because there's a king and you know that you need him, but because you know your need in some other way. Maybe you just stumbled into church today wondering if your marriage can be healed. Maybe you came here full of joy but desiring to be a better parent or to be better at loving your parents. Perhaps you're just sick of work You tried to find your identity in it, and you succeeded. And that didn't deliver like you were hoping that it would. And you're wondering, what hope is there for me? Not meaning your situation's hopeless, but you are desiring a more joyful life with respect to those things. Well, the kingdom parables remind us that there's a king. We don't naturally have him. We need him. And that's the beginning of of healing and restoration to those places. Let's just assume for a second that the problem in your marriage is selfishness. I I know not us, right? But some people have selfish problems in their marriage. Where are you going to learn selflessness? Can you just become selfless? (laughs) If so, write that self-help book and make millions of dollars. Most of us, though, don't even believe that's possible. And scripture 100% assumes that you and I cannot just learn selflessness. We can't just decide, yeah, selfishness selfishness is a problem, so I'm going to be selfless. Great! Those of you that are parents, how are we going to teach these people to be human beings? Well, we're just going to do it exactly like our parents. Well, that's not going to work because you're not them. And this isn't then. Now isn't then. Well, I'm just going to be the opposite of my parents. They were terrible. Listen, that's just the most exhausting way to do life ever. To try to be the opposite of another human. I'm not being mean. I tried it for a long time. It wore me out. How can we teach our children to be human beings? Well, the assumption of Scripture and the teaching of the kingdom parable is the beginning of parenting. Loving our kids well and teaching them to be human beings is acknowledging that there's a king. How can we learn to actually enjoy our work and not let it turn into an idol? 
not go to it to affirm our identity every day by remembering that there's a king and that he has put us in a place that can become a kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy through a trusting relationship with him. But the kingdom begins small, and I think we need to be honest that we don't like small. Quick, quick show of hands, like when you were getting presents as a kid, did you want a big box or a small box? I kind of like the small box because I was like, what could be in there that's interesting? This is before gift cards, right? Like when I was a kid, there weren't that many. I mean, there were, but not as many. I'm like, what could be in that little box? I remember getting little presents and can't remember what one of them is. But just naturally, the problems that I listed earlier, learning to be a good neighbor to our parents or to our friends, learning to be good at our, or learning to enjoy our work and believe that, that God calls work good and noble without uh, finding our identity there, learning to parent our children well, all those problems... We want a quick fix. We want large, fast, now. Pastor, tell me what to fix and I'll do it. I kind of want the peace and the joy. Peace and joy, becoming a restored human, is not fast. And if I told you that it was fast, you might kind of enjoy that this morning and then you would leave like... (laughs) either subconsciously or consciously full of incredible skepticism. Because your and my humanity is way more broken than that. We need healing. Healing is available, but it starts small. But it moves into restoration. I love that this Jewish carpenter told a story 2,000 years ago in a non-individualized society. Our society is so into ourselves. I believe the dominant motif or idol of 2017 is um, autonomy. That's what we are into is autonomy. And Jesus tells a parable, just gently lets us kind of believe it's about us and then subverts it. Isn't that this, have you read the stories of Jesus? Somehow he is lovingly liberal towards conservatives. Somehow he can lovingly push back on the intolerance of liberals. Somehow he can transcend the pettiness of the religious leaders in a loving fashion. And somehow he gently reminds us in the West like, yeah, it's, I mean, you matter, but it's not all about you. What is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And we like that. It kind of sounds like it's about us. And yet, is it? Is the purpose of the tree to be the tree? No, but we're led there so gently. What are we being led towards? A restored humanity. Psalm 1 says this is what the with God life does in a human being. Turns them into stable, fruitful, beautiful entity that glorifies God and is good for neighbor and good for us. I mean, you matter, but it's not about you. And we don't like small and we don't like slow. We want big, fast, and now. And yet I think that we know that almost every good thing we've ever observed or known in our lives 
came about somewhat slowly. Has anyone ever learned to love well quickly? Like just read the leaflet? And that worked for neighbor love. We have a number of talented musicians that our church is very blessed with. They did not learn their skill quickly. Occasionally, perhaps, a poem can be written quickly, but most of the time not. And when it's written quickly, we do well to remember that the poet spent 25 years learning their craft. Some of us are blessed to enjoy our work. We did not become skilled in a day at it. We know that most good things in life take a while for us to learn And it is the same here. The the restoration that God does in those that trust Him with their heart and decisions takes a while. We are immediately called sons of the King when we trust Jesus with our heart and decisions. Our hearts of flesh, this is a reference to uh, Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, our our hearts of stone are removed, we're given hearts of flesh, we're known and loved by God immediately. But the restoration of our heart that then has an effect on our neighbors that teaches us to enjoy our work without idolizing it that teaches us to forgive those that have hurt us this is a slow work but it is a good work the kingdom begins small and moves into restoration what are you and I being turned into According to this, a tree. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Go ahead, Eli. That is a maple tree. That is not a mustard tree, and it's because I have four maple trees in front of my house, and they are gorgeous. The leaves all change color. All four of them, the leaves change at different times of the year. I have no idea why. You can tell me later, but I don't even care. I just think it's gorgeous. I'm tapping two of them and I'm getting better. The maple syrup is... Oh, it's good. You know what I love about a tree? Does it look afraid to you? It doesn't look afraid to me. When I read Psalm 1 and when I see this kingdom parable, when I hear Jesus describing it, I'm so encouraged because I believe the world is a scary place. There are so many things that I worry about. I worry about my family. I worry about war. I worry about my kids. I worry about the refugee crisis. I worry about all of you because that's sort of part of my job. I worry that there are over 100 million people who are being trafficked right now and the with God life calls us to action with respect to those things but the way one of, one of the ways that it calls us to action is by restoring our humanity and turning us into men and women who are like trees who glorify God in their beauty who are able to offer shade and rest to those around them. The kingdom begins small and moves into restoration of our humanity. And you're, 
perhaps sitting here and thinking, I have been a Christian for 22 years. I have trust Christ with my heart and decisions. I attempt to use my words and my money and my time in as much as I can for Jesus. And yet, I don't feel like a tree. I don't feel stable. I feel afraid. Two things about that. One, that's the beginning of very good, robust prayer. Two, that's the gap that we sense. That Jesus has come and offered us his kingdom and we accept it and yet he has not returned. The world is still a disorienting place. There is still sin around us. There are people that have hurt you and you have forgiven them if you're a Christian. But that doesn't mean that the relationship is restored. And so life is still disorienting and we don't feel like trees. And that's where the subjection of the entire world to decay, Romans 8, affects us. And yet the truth of Scripture is that if you know that you're loved by God, He is unstoppably turning you into a man or woman of stability and peace and joy and righteousness. And that is good news that is worth singing about praying about praying that we would experience it more deeply and remembering the kingdom begins small and moves into the restoration of our humanity where we are offered lives of life here and eternally that in trusting Christ with our heart and with our decisions the world doesn't suddenly become the kingdom but we are given the kingdom and our lives reflect his which gives us peace and joy and righteousness In Luke chapter 8, Jesus said, To you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, which is that in a trusting relationship with Jesus Christ, you and I are given increasingly peace and joy and righteousness. The full assumption of this parable is that it is a 0% or 100% issue. There's not a kind of king. And I want to say this, and I want, it to, I want it to be encouraging. But what concerns me about my own heart is that I think of religion, even though I'm a professional Christian, I think of religion as checking a box. As, okay, I've got work, I have relationships, I have to do the religious thing, and we think of that as 8% or 10% or 20% of our life, and we, we're checking a box. The full assumption of this kingdom parable and every kingdom parable is that the with God life is a 100% deal. That everything is in fact in light of the kingdom, not the opposite.
so we remember the truth of the gospel. That God likes us. That He loves us. That in Him we are found and drawn into a kingdom story. To you and to me has been given the secret to know the secret of the kingdom, which is that in Christ we have peace and joy and righteousness. Would you pray with me? Father, because of this text, because of these words that your son Jesus spoke, I believe that you are even now restoring us to greater and greater stability, giving us peace in our hearts, joy in the Holy Spirit, teaching us what it means to be human. Because you have indeed given us the kingdom because your son Jesus purchased it for us. Would you expand our imaginations to know what that is like? Would you help us to trust you, Lord, in all of our disorientation and pain and fear? Would you help us to trust you eternally and this afternoon with our hearts and with our decisions? Amen.